Hello, and welcome to the Salem at Home podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. You know, after getting the opportunity last week to be up here with Aaron, uh, I, I realized how, how lonely that feels. I'm like, oh, wait, I don't, it's just me and Justin this week. We just... So I may be talking to you a little bit more this week, if that's okay. Uh, thank you so much for indulging us last week and uh, letting us have that conversation in front of you. I know it was rich and meaningful for many of you. I've already heard from you, and I know you're probably sad that she is not here. Uh, but we did try to bring the fun, uh, and we still have some fun, actually. I saw a big old thing of candy up here. So Tim's going to come around and give anybody candy, because I'm not taking that home. I refuse to leave this building with it, so... If you want candy, I'm going to bring the fun again this week. Uh, I'm not talking about fun, but uh, yeah, it won't be as fun without Aaron here, but we're going to try to. So take the candy. You have my permission to eat the candy in church, uh, and our toddlers are currently meeting. I see some of them leaving uh, with uh, Beth, so if you want to head to the fellowship hall to meet with Beth this morning, she's going to be teaching them this morning, so you can head right over there. But I am going to finish out this series right here, The Unspiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. And this morning as I talk, I want to remind us of where we started. This series is really a practice for me in helping us understand how we can develop an everyday faith. Right? So it's not just a thing we do on Sunday morning while we sit in this space. It's not something we do when we just sit around and we say our prayers before each of our meals or maybe our bedtime prayers or have our quiet time in the morning. Those are all important but we want to be that people that has an everyday faith that encounters every environment of our life. And this is how I want to end today. I've talked to us a lot about this everyday faith and various practices that we can have. But, but really, in order to have an everyday faith, we have to develop an every space faith. Right? Faith has to penetrate every space of our lives. And again, we're good at it in holy, sacred spaces like this. We're, a little, you know, we're usually good at it. When we are uh, at home, like we can engage with faith in that environment. Sometimes, to varying degrees, you might be good at it at the grocery store and how you respond to the cashier who's had a rough day and you sort of brighten their day, right? We're usually terrible at it on the road. That's not the place where we use our faith and bring our faith in, or at least me. That's usually not where you find me being faithful uh, on the road. But every space that we live in needs to have that. And we get this directly from Christ. This is something that Christ did, and it was often something that got Christ in trouble, right? because he would go into every space, even spaces that the religious leaders thought he shouldn't go in. In fact, the, the, apostle, or the early gospel writer Luke tells us this story in Luke chapter 7, where he's being confronted with some of the disciples of John the Baptist and some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Jesus looks at them and goes, look, you, you called John the Baptist... Uh, you know, you say that he has a demon, and yet he spends all his days fasting and praying and hasn't drank or ate anything, but I come to you, and, and look at what he says here. He says, the Son of Man has come, both eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner. Now, on the surface here, you're like, oh, he claims that he was eating and drinking. This is the problem. That's not the problem. Everybody ate and drank. The John, John the Baptist's disciples ate and drank. The Pharisees and Sadducees ate and drank. The problem is where he was consuming these items. It's not the what he was doing, but the where he was doing. And the Pharisees and Sadducees had a huge problem with the fact that Jesus would often be found sitting and eating and drinking with sinners. 
He found himself in these places. And so he gets this negative reputation because of where he ate and drank, not because of what he ate and drank. And as modern followers of Christ, you know, we may be good at living out our faith at a church event or a church function or on church grounds. But, and, and again, we may be good at home, but it's all the other spaces that we need to under, unpack. And in particular, as, as I want to get this as particular as I can this morning, the one area where it's very difficult for us to live out our faith is the political sphere. I thought a lot about what I would call this sermon and how I would title it because I wanted to push us and help us engage with, with a faith that engages every space, and in particular, what are the spaces that we think are hard to go into. And I think this is, this is one of them. You know, I have a hard time even saying out loud the political sphere, like as if that can't be said in church or we shouldn't talk about that in the context of church. And so when I thought about this, I was like, well, is it, is it the political practice of our faith that I want to talk about or is it the practice of social justice? And interestingly, as I said those things in my head, I'm like, no, both of those can have negative connotations in our world depending on your perspective and where you come from. And it's a weightiness to it that we try to avoid. And, and so I couldn't put myself in a place where I would name the, ty- the sermon anything, either of those, so I ended up naming it The Practice of Public Faith. And it wasn't like I felt like either of those other things were dirty words. They're not dirty words, right? We should know that we can live our life out in the political world and that our faith should engage that. And I certainly don't feel like, you know, seeking justice in the social environment is a bad thing, right? God is all about justice. It doesn't matter where it is, if it's personal, if it's social. God is about it. But unfortunately, here's the reason that there is tension in me, and I assume there's some tension in you around those concepts. It's because we live in a divided world. And when you live in a divided world like we live in, when we engage in that divided world all the time, and and our division in particular is socially grounded, it becomes easier and easier, and this is how I would say it, to forge our personal identity around what we are not instead of what we are. I see something out there that, that is represented in somebody else, and I say, well, I'm not that, but I don't ever really answer the question of what I am. If I grew up in a Republican home, well, I'm not those principles that are aligned with the Democrats. If I grew up in a Democratic home, I'm not those principles that align with the Republicans. I define myself by what I am not instead of what I am. And in that place, our division continues to grow and grow and grow. And this is the reason we have such a hard time talking about the intersection of faith and politics or, or work and justice in the world. Either we're not, uh, not political, right? Some of you in here might be like, I'm not political at all. I just get disgusted at the conversation. I'd rather just avoid the conversation altogether. That's fine. And so you don't want to engage the conversation. Or you're deeply political in one way or the other. And so you, get, you, you don't quite understand how someone could have a different opinion from you or fall on a different line than you. You know, Republicans can't understand how Democrats could be Christian. Democrats don't understand how Republicans can be Christian. And on and on the circle goes because we have identified ourselves by what we're not, rather than what we are. And so when I see someone different from me, I can't recognize them as fully human at all. And this right here is the thing that keeps us from developing a public faith. It keeps us from acting on our faith in the political sphere, and therefore it becomes more and more uncomfortable, even for me, um, to speak about politics in the context of the church. But here's what happens. When we cave to this tension, we avoid this reality, I think we're operating on a myth. I think we're living into a myth, and this is the myth. The myth of public faith is that acting on a public faith 
is equal to adopting a political party. And I don't think that's true. It's, it's not, you shouldn't equate these two together to say, just because I act in a public way around a particular image of faith, and I'm automatically adopting a political party. And the number one reason I would say that is because our identity, above all else, should be grounded in Christ. The things that we believe, the actions that we perform, the way that we live in the world is not grounded in any other interest apart from the interests of Christ in the world. And so if there are in, in uh, our midst those who would kind of see similarities with parties that are out there, okay, but that's not where us as Christians get our identity. We don't ground them in those political parties. And so adopting a Christian practice of faith does not mean that you partner your faith with the public policy of one party over another. Our passion for life or fiscal responsibility doesn't mean that you just adopt all of the Republican Party, right? Social justice, even though it's a word that's largely used by the, by the Democratic Party, doesn't mean that we adopt that party's platform in, in full. It means that we hold on to justice because God is just. We seek justice in the world because we're partners with God. And there are principles and Christian truths that can be found in a variety of political parties, a variety of ideologies for that matter. It goes beyond politics. And when they are, we're called to show up, not for the sake of the party, but we're called to show up for the sake of the kingdom. We're called to show up in those spaces that are advocating kingdom principles, even if they would not start as kingdom principles for those who are around us. Because this is the work of God's king, bringing God's kingdom into this world. And this is why Jesus, throughout his ministry, would be found in some of the strangest of places. He would show up in spaces that religious elites thought that he should not go. Because those weren't sanctified places. Those weren't righteous spaces. But spaces and locations never stopped him from bringing the principles of the kingdom to bear everywhere he went. We know this already, but Jesus came into the world for one very, very simple reason. That reason is proclaimed over and over again all throughout Scripture, but Luke encapsulates this so incredibly in chapter 19, verse 10. He says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's it. This is the why that Jesus showed up. He shows up in the world to seek and to save the lost. But here's the problem with this. Within our interpretive model, we often just limit this to spiritual salvation. We often just think, and you'll hear anywhere from preachers to people on the streets would say, when Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, that's a spiritual reality only. Does he want to save our souls? Absolutely. Does he want to restore us into right relationship with God? He's all about it. Like That's the ultimate goal of all of, God, of what Christ is doing in the world. But he wants to restore all. He wants restoration and reconciliation to be the restoration and the reconciliation of all things of all that we know, of all that we see, of all that we hold in our hands, of all parts of our life, of all parts of our society, from the church house to the White House, from the pews all the way down to the porches, from the middle of our altar rails all the way out to the jail cells. God wants restoration and reconciliation and all of those things, and God is all about the restoration of all things. He wants to make all things in our society right. And so we've taken this verse right here in Luke's gospel that he comes to seek and to save the lost, and we've pulled it out of its context, and we've actually forgotten just how wide God's salvation is. So this morning, I want us to go back into this story. I want us to see exactly what's taking place that led Jesus to say this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And in order to do that, you've got to go all the way back up to verse 1. 
you want to follow along with me, we'll put it up here, but you can also follow along in your Bibles with me. And Luke, this is a very, very familiar story that most of us grew up with. Our children know this, and they know the song to go right along with it, right? They know it. Luke 19, verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, and a man there by the name of, what? Zacchaeus, right? All of you can sing the song right now. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little... Yeah, you got it, you got it. It goes on, though. Listen to what he says. He says, he passes through, he sees a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, we knew, we grew up, many of you, as I started this story, you know who Zacchaeus was. You know who he is. Who's Zacchaeus? He's that wee little man that we like to sing about. And in fact, in the very next verse, we get that, that sort of marker about Zacchaeus. It says in verse 3, he wanted, being Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus wanted to see who, who Jesus was, but because he was short, right? Vertically challenged would be the way we probably should have put this on the screen, but we didn't do that. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, interestingly enough, we've locked in on this particular part of his story, and we've forgotten that his shortness or his vertically challenged nature, whatever it may be, was not the initial identifying marker of Zacchaeus in the story. The initial identifying marker of Zacchaeus in the story was that he was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Luke wants you to know right on the front end, yes, this is a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He'll eventually tell you he was short just because he's up in a tree and it's weird that he's up in a tree. But Luke wants to make sure you know this man is the chief tax collector and he's wealthy. That's what he needs you to know. He needs you to hold on to that. He needs you to recognize how heavy that reality is and how odd this story's about to get in the next couple of verses. Zacchaeus is not the cute little Frodo Baggins that we think he is. He's more like the Lord Farquaad from Shrek, right? That's who Zacchaeus is. He's evil. He's terrible. He's, a, he's an individual in community, even though he's short in stature, who has taken and taken and taken. And society knows him as that, as this ruthless individual, as this callous and cold individual. And so he isn't cute and cuddly, right? But he's someone who people feared. This is the man who has made his wealth in society by exploiting the system. He had committed all types of social sins. And what he did, and I need you to hear me here, what he did was completely legal but it was also completely immoral. Everything he did was abiding by the law of the land, but everything he did was immoral and hurt people because he followed in line with that. And this is where the need for social justice and public faith comes in because there are all sorts of things in our world, and you know it, that are completely legal but are entirely immoral that are problematic for us to participate in and to follow in. And this is the space where we find people around us. You know, we might call them freedom fighters or social justice workers or activists. This is where we find them speaking, but it's in these places where things are completely legal but also completely immoral that we as people of faith need to stand up and fight for the righteousness that God wants in the world. And this is where we find Jesus entering into a different sort of space a space that nobody wanted to see him go into, a space that nobody expected him in the context of this story to go into, but it's a place where he shows up. We think it's about Jesus, or we think as we start this story that it's about Zacchaeus trying to find a public figure, but that's not what this story is about. 
This story turns dramatically in verse 4 as it says, So he ran ahead, Zacchaeus, climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming for him that day or coming that way. And he was looking for Jesus, but all along the way Luke tells us this, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up into the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down and come down immediately because I must stay at your house. This isn't about Zacchaeus seeing Jesus. The story is about Jesus making his way to Zacchaeus' house. It's not about Zacchaeus getting a glimpse of Jesus. It's about Jesus entering into an unholy space and bringing the kingdom into that environment. Jesus is carrying the kingdom of God into the epicenter of injustice in the ancient world. You want to see injustice at its best? You want to see it? Go see his wealth. Go see all that Zacchaeus has built by exploiting other people, exploiting the poor in his area. And everything that he did as as Jesus entered this wealthy environment, Zacchaeus had done under the, the letter of the law. He had done it in a completely legal way, but also a completely immoral way. And Jesus says, hey, I want to go there. That's where I want to be. That's, that's where I want to go into. And Zacchaeus, he accepts the invitation it says in verse 6 and 7, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And I love, I love the word that was used here for the people. It says, All the people saw this, and they began to mutter. You can, you can see a room that mutters, right? They're just like speaking under their breath. This is insane. What the, what the world is happening right here? All right, this is what people were doing. They're muttering under the breath. He's gone to be the guest of sinners. Has he lost his mind? Does he not know what he's doing? I mean, like, this is going to be hugely terrible for his reputation. And Jesus, as, as they start to mutter, Jesus starts to see what's happening. And, and he understands, as they are explaining it, Jesus doesn't belong there. The holy things of God don't belong in that space. And the crowd mutters in that day, this is not the space for faith. And Jesus says, no, this is exactly the space for faith. This is exactly where I need to be. And we don't, want, we, don't, we don't know what it happened, you know, right, right after he got there. We're not sure exactly what Jesus said. We don't know what he said on the way. We don't know what he said when he got there. You know, I love your rug as you're coming in, what you've done with the windows. I mean, it's beautiful. Like, we don't know any of those things. But what we know is shortly after his arrival, Zacchaeus has this revelation of who God is and who God wants him to be. And look at the transformation that takes place in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up as the people were muttering and saying that this isn't a place where Jesus goes. Zacchaeus stands up and he says to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anyone out of anything, and everybody in the room's like, Yeah, you did. You cheated me out of it, right? They're all there as witnesses of this. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is one of the most massive shifts towards social justice in the ancient world. This crooked and corrupt individual relinquished half of his wealth. In modern terms, we use this term a lot, but this is exactly what's taking place here. He paid reparations for his unjustful acts to those people in that community. His wealth was not just a product of his actions. Remember, he is the very first descriptor. He's not only the tax collector, but he's the chief tax collector, which means that he received money not only from those that he had wronged, but also from other tax collectors who were collecting from other people, and he would take from them. And so Zacchaeus has amassed an incredible amount of wealth, and he's sitting on it in this space, 
as the chief tax collector, and he's received payment from others for their dirty works, and his money at this point is completely washed because, well, I didn't do it, right? It wasn't me who touched that money. Somebody else paid me that money after they took it from them. I don't know. I just collected the regular rent. But the vast amount of his wealth is collected from others who had collected. And so he could feel good about himself. He can feel fine because he's separated from that action. And still, the moment that he encounters Christ, he gives it back. Still, he rights the wrong. Still, Jesus enters his home and brings change. And on the other side of this action, Jesus says these words that we started with. Verse 9 and verse 10. Today, salvation. There's that word. That word that we often just limit to spiritual transformation, but in this place is clearly not only a spiritual transformation. I believe something happened deep within inside Zacchaeus, but there was also a social transformation that took place in light of Zacchaeus' spiritual transformation. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Now let me just pause right there. There's an interesting reality of what Jesus does right here. Jesus doesn't say salvation has come to this man. He says salvation has come to to this house or this household, to all who are gathered in this place, salvation has been found. To Zacchaeus and my followers who are here who have been wronged by him, everyone is starting to experience the kingdom of God coming into this place, and they're being able to experience salvation because of this man's actions right here. Because of what Zacchaeus did, for this man too is a son of Abraham. And then he says that famous statement that we started with, for the son of man came so that he could seek and save the lost. Salvation is discovered in the act of making things right in this space. Salvation is discovered as, he, his, as Zacchaeus extends that mercy to all who he had treated unjustly. And Jesus says salvation has come to this house, to this people, to this group, to this community because of what this man decided to do. Through this action right here, a piece of God's kingdom is now seen in a brand new way, in a brand new world. Peace of God's kingdom is coming in, and this man has made it possible. And this isn't just the work for Jesus to do. This is work that Jesus invites all of us to do. This same process of righting wrongs in society, of fighting for injustice, of seeing oppression and calling it out, is what he invites you and I to be a part of. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus is telling these like horror stories about the end of time, and he tells several, right, one right after another in Matthew chapter 25. And the last one he tells is about the great judgment day where God will come together and he will separate groups of people out like sheep and goats, right? And in that society, sheep were, val- or sheep were valuable. I don't think sheep is a word. Sheep were valuable and goats were not, Right? And God separates them out. And you're like, well, what's the great identifying marker here? Did the sheep believe in you and place their faith and trust in you and ask for forgiveness of sin and the, the goats didn't? Like, what's the, what's the identifying marker, Jesus? And Jesus goes through the entire story, and you know this already, but he tells them, he says, when you saw me naked and didn't give me clothes, when you saw me hungry and you didn't feed me, when you saw me thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink and everybody is shocked, you're like, Jesus, <laughs> just got to be honest with you. You were gone. Like, we never saw you in any of those places. You always, I mean, you, the others said it. You're a glutton, right? You drank all the time. You ate all the time. You, we didn't see you in any of those spaces. As far as I know, you always had clothes on, even when you were in the desert, although you were by yourself. So maybe you disrobed at some point. I don't know. But I think you were, you know, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Well, you didn't do for the least of these. 
these you didn't do for me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, this is the action and activity of our faith. And on the other side of it, he says some pretty damning things. You know, he, the goats who he said this to are the ones he's like, depart from me. I never knew you. You weren't a part of the kingdom of God. Go into that place of eternal torment that has been destined for you. I mean, we, don't, we don't like to read that part of Jesus' statements, but, and I don't, he doesn't say, I'm sending you there. By your actions is the implication of this word. That's your eternal place. You never acted in keeping with the kingdom. You never allowed the kingdom to be a part of your life. So don't be a part of the kingdom. You don't want to be. Go to your eternal resting place, which would be separation from God. And that's hard. And none of us like to hear that. But this is the reality of the kingdom, that we as people of God show up in all this space. And this call to live out our faith in every space, and particular in public spaces where injustice is found, is for us all. Our faith has to show up in these places. Our faith has to show up where injustice and oppression are. For salvation is coming, and we are the ones who will help usher it in. But as we do, we don't do it like the rest of the world. And so as Christians show up in public, as Christians show up in these spaces, we're going to show up in a different sort of way. We're going to show up with a different sort of principles. We're going to show up with a different sort of attitude as we go into them. If we take Jesus' story seriously with Zacchaeus and we see the way that Jesus did it, then we're going to discover this. Living out our faith in public sphere requires two things. It requires that we listen empathetically, and it requires that we speak courageously. Both of those things are important. Listen empathetically and speak courageously. Listen empathetically and speak courageously. And this is exactly what Jesus did with Zacchaeus, right? Jesus could have gone to those in society who had been cheated by Zacchaeus. He could have gone to them, and he could have sat with them compassionately and just listened to them. But instead, he listens empathetically to Zacchaeus in Zacchaeus' home. He sits in that space with Zacchaeus and he develops an empathy, right? Jesus is not going to separate the world out between the oppressed and the oppressor and I'm always going to stand with the oppressor over here. He's going to say all are God's children and we need to listen empathetically to all. We see him at times engage the poor and the destitute. We see him listening empathetically to him. But he offers us this open invitation to not only be with the poor and the destitute, but to be with all and to listen empathetically to all. But even in that space of listening empathetically, he doesn't just stop there and say, oh, I kind of understand. You wanted this. Like, you, you really like nice windows or whatever it was in Zacchaeus's house. right? He, he doesn't stop there. He actually pushes him towards transformation. He pushes him towards something different. And Zacchaeus responds. And so there's a courageous activity that takes place in the context of their engagement that leads to transformation in Zacchaeus's life. And we can't have one without the other. And this is the problem that I see in a lot of social justice movements. I see it all over the world, is that we will either side on the side of empathy without courage, or we will side on the side of courage without empathy. And both of them lead to disastrous re realities for us, right? Sometimes courage without empathy is grounded in vanity. Courage without empathy in our world just gets absolved in self-love. I just want to do something for the sake of me, and I want to be the one who's out there. And if I don't have any empathy for the other, then it very quickly can devolve into vanity and self-love. Very quickly devolve into narcissism. But on the flip side of that, empathy without courage is grounded in apathy. 
that I'll listen to you and I'll empathize with you and I'll have some compassion for you, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand up and call for any courageous change. I'm just apathetic about it. I'll just let you sit there and be exactly what you are. But the best examples of public faith hold these two in balance, to speak empathetically and to speak courageously, to listen empathetically and to speak courageously. You know, I started this sermon out with the criticism of the Pharisees that they leveled against him. He's a glutton and he's a drunkard. And, and we know it's not because he ate or drank. We know it's because he, of where he was, where he chose to practice his faith in this sort of divided world. And the truth is, is we'll face the same sort of criticism. If we show up in spaces that seem less than holy, we'll face the same criticism that Jesus faced for showing up in spaces that we shouldn't show up in, being with people we shouldn't be with. But if we choose to carry our faith into a public sphere, to listen empathetically, to speak courageously in this world, then I believe God will actually start to bring about some incredible moments of transformation. And that's what we see in this passage early on in Luke chapter 7. Let me read it to you once again. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But listen to how he finishes this statement right here. He says, after this, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. Now, Jesus says in this moment that the truth will come out in the next generation. The truth will come out in the way that the next generation lives their life. It's going to come after you. It's going to follow. Whatever the truth is, the next generation will live into that truth. And immediately, Luke turns to a story in Luke chapter 7 where the truth is proven true, where a child of wisdom is actually found. And this time, the story doesn't take place in a tax collector's home. This place, the story takes place in a Pharisee's home. And in this Pharisee's home, Jesus is again having a meal. And as he sat down to have the meal in what would be a sacred environment, a woman who's lived a very public life of shame comes in. Wisdom is proved right by all of her children. By Jesus' actions of engaging the world that was out there, Jesus opened himself up to an opportunity where even in sacred spaces unsacred realities would start to enter. And this woman who had lived this public life of shame to many people known as a prostitute, everyone in the room who was gathered there that day knew this about her. And what we don't understand about prostitution in the ancient world was it was the only way that a woman could stand on her own financially. It wasn't about you know, just prostituting her body away, but it was about finding financial freedom apart from others. And so she wanted to stand on her own. She wanted to be on her own. And Jesus engaged her in this world. He'd found himself in the places where prostitutes and sinners would eat and drink, and he, no doubt, had found her. And with the wealth that she had gained from that life, she came on this occasion in the middle of the Pharisee's home and she dedicated herself back to Jesus. She took the wealth that she had collected from that lifestyle and she bought a bottle of oil and she anointed Jesus in that space. And she doted on him and she cared for him and she loved him and she wouldn't leave his side. 
Jesus has this amazing story that he tells about this woman. It's a parable he tells to the Pharisees about, you know, who would be the greater of a debt that had been relieved? Who, who would experience the greater joy? The person who has lesser debt or greater debt? And everybody's like, well, of course the person who has greater debt. This is exactly what you're seeing here. The moment that we can engage these spaces where people seem so far from God, there's a joy and a transformation in our world that can creep up and start to creep in even to our most sacred spaces. And so as we finish this morning, I wonder where, where is the somewhere else that God is calling you to? Where's the somewhere else, the space that God is saying, I want your faith to be there? seems scary. It seems like other people might judge you for having your faith in that environment, but that's what he's calling you to. We're called to be a people who make disciples, who, who have been transformed, and who will transform the world. But this is only going to happen when we go into those spaces. We're going to have to get uncomfortable with some of those spaces. We're going to have to get uncomfortable with working for justice in some of those social spaces, for going to be the one who meets the needs of people at all levels of society, whatever they are. And wherever we see just injustice in the world, we're going to have to be the ones who proclaim the kingdom of God. And so that's my closing question. Where is the somewhere else God is calling you? To be the light, to share his love, even if it seems so unrighteous, but it's exactly where he wants your faith to shine through, your love and his kingdom to come. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? Gracious God, we thank you for this moment. This holy moment where we can rest in your presence. As we go forth from this place, we ask God that you would indeed make us instruments of your peace in this world. Where there is toil and division, let us sow hope. Let us be the ones, God, who bring in the light of Christ to every environment that we walk into, and even if they be environments that oftentimes you are unwelcome, environments that seem so unholy, help us, God, to carry that banner high and to carry forth your good news to all that we come in contact with. In Christ's name we pray.